The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning again. Welcome to Working Hill Bible Church. Great to have you this morning. Hey, before we jump into our sermon for today, I have one more announcement um, to give for us. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. If you've been here pretty regularly the last few months, you probably have. Um, And it's one of those challenges slash problems that's a good problem for a church to have. And that problem is this, that if you, most Sundays, not every single one, but many Sundays, if you show up to church and you, for some horrible reason, aren't early, that happens once in a while to some of you. I understand that. Um, And you try and walk in about two to three minutes into the service and you go to find a place to sit, it can be hard to find a place to sit. And that's especially true if you have the audacity to like come with your family and you actually want to sit together in church. Like how dare you? Um, that, that, that can be a challenge. And that is in the church world, a good problem to have. Um, it's much better than the alternative where no one's showing up on Sundays, right? So, so I, I've actually had the last several weeks, I mean, I was just thinking this week, last week I met, I think it was six or seven different people who have started to come to Morgan Hill Bible Church within the last few months. One of them, he started coming with one of his friends who's a coworker, and now he's here regularly. Another one literally was like, well, I just started reading the Bible, I got saved, and I Googled churches, and yours was the first one, so here I am. I was like, that's incredible. Welcome. Like, and he's, he's been here regularly for a few months. Uh, others, you know, there's many different stories, but I'm excited because God is, God is doing something in and through the life of our church, reaching people and connecting them in a relationship with Jesus. And because of that and just the space limitations we have, I'm excited to let you know that in September 3rd, so this fall, September 3rd, we're going to be moving to three Sunday morning services three Sunday morning services. So if you're one who loves to know the times, those are actually printed in the worship guide and the announcement section. So they'll be 8, 15, 9, 30, and 11 o'clock. Some of you are excited because it means you get an extra half hour of sleep and can still make it at 11 o'clock. Others of you are excited because you're now realizing that you can go to the first service and you will be home before football has even kicked off that day. So there are no excuses this fall for when the Niners play the early game, right? You can still make it to church and get home. Hey, there, there is, um, I say adding a service to a church is kind of like adding a kid to your family. You're not just adding problems, you're multiplying all of the challenges and things that, that come in. And, and by doing so, I mean, we'll talk a lot more about this in the next few weeks. Sometimes September feels a long ways away, right? It's summer. It's, there's six Sundays between now and then. Right, So it'll be here quick before you know it. And until I figure out how I can clone Shawnee and Emily and Ricky and Ben, so we have about 50 of them, it takes lots of us, not just staff, but our whole church to help what happens here on Sunday mornings. And we'll be in touch more about some of the needs and the opportunities for you. But for this week, I just want to highlight, why, why are we doing this? Why are we adding another service, going through all the extra work? And, and it's really because the mission of Morgan Hill Bible Church is to connect people into a relationship with Jesus. That's what we're all about. And we believe that there's still people in the Morgan Hill Gilroy area that God wants to save, and he wants to use our church to be a part of them getting to meet Jesus. 
And we want to make sure that when anyone comes to church on a Sunday, for many, maybe it's their first time back or their first time in a very, very long time, that there's a seat and a place for them to sit and to hear the message of what Jesus has done for them. Their kids can be loved. And we want to make sure that we have every opportunity we can to show and to share the love of Jesus. So that's our heart behind why we're going to be going to three services. And you'll hear, like I said, a lot more about that in the upcoming month. If you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and open it up to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. Now, if you were here last week, you'll be like, isn't that what we talked about last week? It is. The passage was too good, though, so I had to divide it in half, and we're covering the last half of this chapter this week. We are wrapping up, as Shani mentioned, our series called Foretold. Now, the reason we're wrapping up this series, which has kind of looked at Old Testament prophecies pointing to Jesus, we're wrapping it up not because we've run out of things that the Old Testament says about Jesus, all right? So, so I, I was doing some research this week. It's hard to find an exact number, um, but, but most biblical scholars will agree there are at least 400 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus specifically fulfilled. All right, 400. So we're not, we're not stopping this series because we've run out of content. We literally could preach this every Sunday for years and how Jesus is the culmination of all of Scripture and how Old Testament is pointing forward to him. The other astounding thing to remember as we dive into passages like this this morning is this passage we're going to look at today was written over 700 years before the birth of Jesus. The Old Testament, these passages aren't just things as Jesus was coming onto the scene, people saw him and started to write and say about him, but were things that were, were told by God generations, centuries before, which can add to our faith, seeing how clearly and fully Jesus has fulfilled these things. So, so let's jump in. Isaiah chapter 53, starting verse seven, says this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The first thing that we see highlighted in this passage this morning is the greatness of Jesus. These verses highlight for us the greatness of this servant, Jesus, the Messiah, who was to come. The author accomplishes this in, in these verses in particular by contrasting this servant who was to come with how the people and really in general humans would, would um, operate, but specifically these people in the time, in the context in which Isaiah is writing to the nation of Israel. And the first contrast that's shown between Jesus, the servant who he's prophesying of, the first thing that we see is the servant's submission. The servant's submission and, and how this, this one to come, Jesus will submit fully to the will of his father. And we see this ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, and he highlights the submission in his silence in the face of the accusations that were leveled against him. You see there in verse 7 that, that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opens not his mouth. 
Now, you and I likely have never been put on trial like an actual trial, but, but we are quick to have typically one of two responses when, when we are accused of anything. First, if we are guilty, if someone accuses us of something and we are guilty, we are quick to deflect or excuse that behavior away, right? We even talked about this if you heard last week. That's the normal human reaction towards blame, right? Is we will deflect, we will minimize, we will excuse it away, even if we understand, no, I'm guilty of that, but I'm not gonna own it. I'm gonna push it off, I'm gonna excuse it away. But we are especially vocal if someone accuses you of something and you are innocent of it. Right? Has this ever happened in your marriage? You did that. No, 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 no. For once, I actually didn't. Right? Like we are quick to defend ourselves. If we are accused of something that we have not done, we, we quickly speak up and try and state and argue our innocence. And throughout the book of Isaiah, he's, he's been talking about how judgment is coming to them and they've tried to deflect. They've tried to excuse away their sin, their behavior throughout the whole book. Yet there's the servant is coming who will be oppressed and afflicted, but won't open his mouth to defend himself. See, this is looking forward and we see this fulfilled in Jesus. When Jesus was arrested, he was put on basically six different trials over the course of a few hours. He was tried multiple times by the chief priests and the high priests before he was sent to Pilate, who sent him to Herod, who ultimately sent him back to Pilate as well. And one of the themes that we see in the Gospels around this of Jesus is his lack of defense and his lack of speaking in the face of the accusations around him. It says this in the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 27. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. To demonstrate this, this Jesus being silent and submissive before his accusers, is, there's a comparison made at the end of verse 7. He's like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. Now, if you remember, you can look back in verse 6 if you have your Bible open. At the end of verse 6, we as humans are contrasted with the bad part of sheep. Their ability to just wander and get lost, and if you remember that video, get stuck in just about anything all the time. Jesus now gets the good side of sheep, right? Who will obediently go and lead wherever they are told to go. Even if it's to be, yes, sheared for its wool, but also even if it's to be killed. That's the image of Jesus. And these are pictures of his submission to what God had for him. That in the face of these accusations, he didn't defend himself. It shows the greatness of Jesus. The second way that we see the greatness of Jesus in this is that how he responded during his experience of injustice. That when Jesus was accused, these, these accusations were brought against him was a total miscarriage of justice that Jesus went through. We see this in verse eight, where it says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. See, Isaiah's message that he brought to the people was punishment was coming to you and it's a rightful punishment that you deserve because of your sin. Jesus did not deserve to be punished. He did not deserve to go to the cross. Matthew in Matthew 26 puts it this way. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. 
though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. See, Jesus had these trials, but there was no right accusations thrown against him. And he lived under this oppression of justice and he submitted himself still to the will of his father. And it's because not of his wrongdoing, but because of others, your and my wrongdoing, that he was this way. The third way that we see the greatness of Jesus highlighted in this passage is there at the end, and that's the innocence of Jesus. The innocence or the perfection. Notice at the end of verse nine, that all this happened to him, cut off from the land of living, although he did no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. See, the people that Isaiah was writing to were going off into being punished, were going to be judged because of their wickedness. They deserved what was coming to him. On contrast with this is this one who was to come, their Messiah, who will be innocent, will suffer misjustice, but will have no reason for it, was completely innocent of it. In fact, one of Jesus' own disciples reflecting back on his life and then quoting the prophet Isaiah writes this. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, excuse me, 1 Peter 2, he says this. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That the greatness of Jesus, the greatness of the Messiah is seen in his submission, in in how he handles this injustice and in his perfection, his innocence in which he goes to the cross. There's actually another prophecy there in verse nine that Jesus fulfills. In verse nine, it says that he'll be with a rich man in his death. This is actually fulfilled by the man who goes and asks for Jesus's body after he's crucified. Matthew 27 says this, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Don't you love just even the level of detail that these prophecies contain that are fulfilled in Jesus? Even the type of man who would go and ask, that it wouldn't be just anyone, but someone who's of wealthy means, a rich man in his death. And Jesus was buried in the tomb of a rich man. This passage, Isaiah 53, 7 to 9, shows up one other time in the New Testament. And it's in the book of, of Acts. In Acts chapter 8, We're told this story of a guy who was from the ancient nation of Cush, or sometimes the Bible translates it Ethiopia. And he was a ruler in the court, an official. And he was out traveling in a chariot reading, it says, the scroll of Isaiah. And one of the apostles, Philip, was kind of sent by God and went and approached him. And he walked up to to Philip and said, do you understand what you are reading? And Philip read for Philip read for him in Acts chapter eight, excuse me, the Ethiopian read these three verses, verses seven, eight, and nine in Isaiah 53, and said, was the prophet speaking of himself or was he speaking of one to come? And it says that Philip from these three verses went on to tell him all that Jesus had done for him and ultimately led him to be saved and baptized him right there. The first non-Jewish convert to Christianity was saved because he read these three verses from Isaiah 53. And he saw the greatness of Jesus, this one who would suffer wrongdoing for someone else, even though they are innocent. And Philip used this to lead this man to Christ, to see that this speaks of the greatness, this grandeur of the Messiah who was to come. The second thing that I wanna point out for us this morning in this passage is seen just there at the beginning of verse 10. 
It says this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. See, the second thing we see in this passage is the paradox of pain. We see the paradox of pain in this passage. There are certain verses that are in the Bible that I don't really like because if it were me, I would make Christianity different. This is one of those verses. It should kind of, I think, irk us the wrong way when we read this verse, right? It was the will of the Lord, of Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the creator of all things, to crush Jesus. Wait, that, that's God's will? What, what, what does it mean by that? What does it mean that it was the will of God to crush him? See, Jesus understood this. This is why Jesus could submit to the cross, could submit to all this injustice, is he knew the plan of God. Jesus voluntarily submitted to all that happened to him because he knew it was a part of the larger purposes of God that he was using and accomplishing in his life. See, Jesus knew that the plan of his life was leading all along to the cross. Jesus knew that the cross was the center of everything, and that's where he was headed. If you read through the gospel sometimes, I would encourage you, if you never have, just sit down and try in a day or two to read through one of the entire gospels. They weren't written, so you would just read them a little bit at a time. But read the whole story of one, and you'll see that like Jesus will sit down with his disciples and be like, all right, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest me and kill me. And the disciples are like, no, you're not. She's like, all right. And you're like, I'll like to go do some stories. Like the next chapter, Jesus is like, I must go to Jerusalem. I will be crucified. I will rise from the dead. And the disciples are like, yeah, but probably not. Probably not, right? Like it's, it's there over and over and over again that Jesus knows what is the mission of his life? What is the will of God? It is the cross. But that didn't mean that there would be no pain. And Jesus certainly understood that. And if you know the story, right before Jesus is arrested, he goes and he prays. And one of the things that he cries out to God in the garden before he's arrested is, is, Lord, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, would you please take this? But not my will, but yours be done. See, not, not what I want, God, but I am going to submit myself to your will. And this is the paradox of pain. And that through the greatest pain imaginable brings the greatest good for us. That through the cross, we find life. And in a very similar way, we too can experience this paradox of pain in our own lives. So when we realize that it was God's plan for Jesus to go to the cross, and it was going to use Jesus's pain to bring about extraordinary good, it reminds us of this truth, is that pain does not mean you are living outside of the purposes and plans of God for your life. Pain does not mean you are living outside of the purposes and plans of God for your life. Now, why do we sometimes think that? Why do we think that when we are going through a challenge, when we're going through painful and hard experiences, why is it natural for us to think that, well, God's not here. I must have abandoned God. God isn't present with me anymore. Well, there's a few reasons. First, I think it's the simple one is this, is that we don't like pain. 
Well, if you do like pain, you're like normally locked up in institutions, right? Because those are like crazy people, right? None of us like pain. If someone's like, all right, I have, uh, we need to get this done. And there's two ways to do this, an easy way or a painful way. Every single one of his like, easy way, please. Like that would be my preferred mode. And because we don't like pain, pain is never the preferred plan for our lives. Pain is never the plan that you would pick for your life. If someone were to ask you, hey, do you want to live your life with chronic illness and pain? You'd be like, no, no, I don't. Do you want your marriage to be described by deep pain in the relationship? Nope, I don't want that. Do you want your parenting journey to be described as great pains in trying to love and disciple your kids? We'd be like, I don't want that. That that, that would not be my preferred plan. Now, pain is, is never our plan. And because of that, our lives just revolve around comfort, don't they? Because we make, we make everything we can to be as comfortable as possible. Now, full confession, I'm thankful for that. Not all of that is bad, right? We're in an air-conditioned room right now. I'm very thankful for that, right? I would be looking very gross and sweaty right now if there weren't AC in here. But it creates this mindset that we can easily come, that pain is something I must avoid, and pain is always bad. But pain is used by God to accomplish his will in our lives. That's the paradox of pain, is that we try and avoid it, but God uses it to accomplish his will and his purposes and his plan in our lives. I was, uh, I'm reading a book right now. I've been reading it for the last couple of weeks, and it's been helpful for me in just kind of understanding, and it's been helpful for me, hopefully it will be for you, in understanding this concept of pain ultimately leading to good. And it's a book that I'm reading um, by an Irish guy who's on an expedition. I haven't read it yet, so I don't know if he finishes or not, but his goal is to climb Mount Everest. Mount Everest, the highest mountain in the world. That's his goal. And he's writing all along, and each chapter is basically takes up one day in his journey. Now, I don't know if you know, and I didn't really fully realize this, but when you, when you hike Mount Everest, you don't just fly into the area, put on a backpack, get your gear, hike to the top, turn around and hike back down and be like, high five, good job, everybody. Most of the time, it takes about two months to hike to the top of Mount Everest. It's a two-month journey. Not that it would take two months if you were just to get on a backpack or just to start hiking, but, but there's this thing called acclimation that the body has to go through. Now, we have a picture. If you're a visual person like me, that, then maybe this is helpful for you for. So eventually, after about a week's worth of hiking, when you land, this is kind of the main way that people hike up, you'll go to what's called base camp. Now, just to remember, base camp at 5,300 meters is higher than Mount Whitney. Right? It's higher than any point in the Sierra Nevadas. That's base camp. Right? So you're still way, way up there. But what's fascinating to me to read his journey is you take about a week to get to base camp. You'll, you'll rest and recover for a couple days. And then eventually you'll hike up to camp one, which is the little camp, camp thing to where the one is. You have to go across the glacier. You get to camp one. When you go to camp one, you'll rest for a couple days, go up to camp two. You'll stay in camp two for about 45 minutes, and then you'll hike back to camp one, and then you'll hike back to base camp, and you'll stay in base camp for about three or four more days. After that, you'll hike back to camp one. You'll hike back to camp two, and you'll stay there this time. After a couple days, you'll hike up to camp three, stay there for about an hour, and then hike back to camp two, 
the next day back to camp one, the next day back to base camp. And after a week of recovery and a month of hiking, only then are you about ready to make a summit push towards the top. And there's this process that the body goes through called acclimation, where you're incrementally stretching yourself, experiencing greater pain, but your body will adapt to it. And it's only if you start to expose yourself to more pain over this series of time is your body able to actually handle the stress of going all the way to the very top. And for me, I thought that was such a perfect picture of why, of what pain often looks like in our lives. So you and I would be like, oh, well, let's, God has to get me here. Well, let's just go. Let's just walk straight there. There's no problem at all. And God's like, okay, well, we're going to go here and it's going to hurt. And then you're going to go back. And then I'm going to put you through something else that will prepare you a little bit closer. And then you'll have a break. And then I'm going to push you a little bit harder into something else until you relax. And maybe after several years of this, are you able to walk into this plan that I have for you? See, it's amazing after, after all of this time, after weeks and weeks and weeks of going through this and battling the illnesses that, and all of the physical pain that they go through, he says one of the most helpful things this author writes is that almost all the time when they're out and about, they can see the peak. They can see it. He says the only thing that keeps us going day in and day out is we see the peak and we know that's, that's what we're trying to get to. That's what we're trying to get to see. Knowing the goal enables them to go through the pain required to get there. How do we endure pain as followers of Jesus? Is we have to focus on the ultimate goal that God has for us. And this is why so many Christians who have been raised in church don't understand pain in their lives because we don't understand the goal that God has for our lives. Because we think, what's the goal of God for me? Well, it's that when I die, I go to heaven. Well, it's true, but if you're a follower of Jesus, that's not God's goal for your life. God's goal for your life is that every single day you would be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus. That every single day you would look and act and think and desire things like Jesus more than he did the day, the week, the month, the year before. And let me tell you from my own personal experience, when God wants to make you look like Jesus, it hurts. It's not a painless experience to chip away the selfishness, the pride, the sin, the lust, the arrogance, all of those things that are in our hearts. That's not painless to go through, that it takes deep pain to have to walk through. And the reason why so many of us leave Christianity or get so frustrated at God is we think God's purpose was just to make me happy and save me one day. And he's like, I'm trying to make you look like Jesus. And until we keep our eyes and understand that that's the point of life, that's the goal that God has for us, pain doesn't make sense. See, if the ultimate goal of our lives is achieving a bank account with a certain dollar amount, then generosity and the work that God has to do in that won't, won't work in our lives. If our, if our goal in life is to accumulate power, living a life of service and humility towards others doesn't make any sense. If the goal of our life is comfort, then suffering is thrown out the window and has nothing to do with what God would have for us. But in the paradox of pain, God uses what we would choose to avoid to bring us closer to him. God uses what we don't want to bring about the greatest growth in our lives. Now, I know for many this morning, 
You wouldn't have chosen it, but your life has been described for many years by pain. Physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain. I just want to encourage you this morning that God sees you in your pain. That God knows it, and God can and wants to use it for good for you. That you're not alone in the pain that you've gone through. That he wants to redeem it and to use it for you. And a question for for us, because all of us are either in the midst of painful circumstances or walking into them soon. Instead of the next time we find ourselves in painful circumstance, the, the, the normal question that you and me, all of us ask this is, okay, God, when can I get out of this? Right? Like, when can I get back to normal? When can you remove this hard circumstance from my life? What if the next time we encountered pain, we said, God, how are you trying to use this? God, not when can I get done with it, but how are you using this in my life? God, what could you be doing here to chip away at something in me that doesn't look like you? God, how could you use this pain to transform me to look more like Jesus? God, what do you want to accomplish? See, it's this paradox of pain that through the greatest pain, the cross, Jesus brings life. And the paradox of pain in our own lives is that God will allow painful experiences for us to go through, but will draw us closer to him. The passage finishes in verse 10 through 12, says this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him with a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The third thing that we see in this passage is the accomplishment of the cross. We see here the accomplishment of the cross and what Jesus did for us. See, Jesus himself understood that this passage was pointing to his mission and his purpose on what he came to do. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke 22, one of the last things before Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives and is betrayed, in Luke 22, verse 37, as he says this, For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressors, for that, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus understood that this passage was talking about the cross and what he was about to step into to accomplish for us. See, it's in this passage, not the first or the only time in the Old Testament, but certainly the clearest time, is that we start to see that this Old Testament language of sacrifices and of guilt and of offerings is not just pointing to a system on which people will operate, but pointing to a person that will fulfill what God has done and what God needs to do. If you notice there, the language picks up all that happens in the Leviticus and Numbers in verse 10, when he makes an offering for guilt. In verse 11, he, many will be accounted or reckoned as righteous because he will bear their iniquities. Those are the same words that described all the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and the purpose of what it was to do. And it's pointing forward to the fact that one day one will come who won't just make a sacrifice for sin, 
but will be the sacrifice for sin. Who won't just offer a lamb on an altar, but will be the lamb of God and will die in our place on an altar of the cross that you and I can have life. It's pointing forward to the fact that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for sin once and for all on the cross. But it's pointing not just to to him making an offering for guilt that we can be declared righteous through him. It's pointing even to Jesus's life beyond the grave. Notice what it says there at the end of verse 10, that he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. These are phrases that you can't refer to someone who's dead. Right? You can't see and prosper and live long if you have died. And it already is hinting at this idea that the Messiah, after he dies for sins, will experience life beyond the grave itself. And even that phrase, seeing his offspring, is pulling back to Genesis 3.15. If you're here the very first week we started and talked about this battle of scripture between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. It's picking up on that very idea that from Jesus will flow a spiritual family because of the work that he has done on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And ultimately, because of what he's done on the cross, God will exalt him. In verse 12, it says that he will divide with him a portion of the many and divide the spoil with the strong. Those are phrases that would use when a conquering king would come back with all the wealth of the nations that he has plundered. It's a sign of of victory and exaltation. And we see this played out in the life of Jesus, that he humbled himself, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and God exalts him because of it. And Philippians 2 puts it this way. Speaking of Jesus, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, what Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah, Jesus fulfilled in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. What Isaiah prophesied of this servant to come who would die for the sins of many, Jesus fulfilled. But of the servant who would rise from the dead and be exalted by God because of what he's done, Jesus also now isn't just dead, but he's raised from the dead and exalted, seated at the right hand of God the Father. See, as we reflect on Old Testament prophecies like this one and like the the other ones that that we have looked at during this series, I hope your your first, I hope one of the things you're seeing is the awe at how Jesus so perfectly fulfills scripture. And that's why these passages are so important that Jesus doesn't just come and claim to be a good person or claim to even have this outrageous claim of being God, but he can prove it as well. Because all of these Old Testament prophecies pointing forward to the Messiah are fulfilled in him. But another thing that I hope you see continually as we've looked throughout the last couple months at this, and I hope you're in awe of the depths of the love of God for you and for me. Because what the Old Testament helps us understand so clearly is this, is that sin entered into the worlds, but right from the start, God had a plan. God had a plan because sin disrupted your and my relationship with him. But God said, I love them too much. 
that I'm willing to just let them die in their sin. I need to do something about it. And Jesus was the plan right from the very start. That because God loves you so much right from the start, and there's these hints, there's these teasers as to what this will look like, the kind of love, and we get the privilege of standing on this side, looking back, not just seeing the Old Testament, but seeing the fulfillment in Jesus. And I hope you regularly see as you read the Old Testament, God loves me. That Jesus knew what the cross would take, but he walked through it. Why? Because he loves me you. This was God's plan to inflict the greatest pain imaginable on his son to save people like you and like me. God, we do thank you for your love. That while we were still sinners, lost and dead in rebellion against you, you fulfilled your plan from the start and you sent Jesus to die for us. God, may we never cease to be in awe of your love, your goodness, and your mercy in our lives. God, more and more would our lives be in tune with the plans that you would have for us. For those of us who are walking through painful journeys of our lives, God, would we see how you're using this? God, would we see your purposes accomplished in our lives to become more like Jesus? And we thank you for all that Jesus has done for us. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.